Blog Talk Radio. Okay. Right, look, let's do something that is very rarely done in the okay. Congress. Let's do something that the media doesn't do. Let's talk about the reality of American life. Why is it that over the last 45 years, despite the huge increase in productivity and technology, the average worker today is not making a nickel more in real dollars? Why is it that over the last 30 years, the richest 1% have seen a $21 trillion increase in their wealth, bottom half of America, $900 billion decline in their wealth. Why is it that we are the only major country on earth not to guarantee health care to all people as a human right? Why are we the only major country not to have paid medical and family leave? Why do we give tax breaks to billionaires when a half a million people are homeless today? And it comes down to something, Jake, we don't talk about. The power structure in America. Who has the power? And I'll tell you who has the power. It's the people who contribute money, the billionaires who contribute money to political campaigns, who control the legislative agenda. Those people have the power. And if you want to make real changes in this country, if you want to create an economy that works for all, not just the few, if you want to guarantee quality health care to all, not make $100 billion of profit for the health care industry, you know what you need? You need to take on Wall Street. You need to take on the drug companies and the insurance companies and the fossil fuel industry. You don't take campaign contributions from them. You take them on and create an economy that works for all. Hello, in addition to the, uh, I'm sorry, welcome to this edition of V Radio. Uh, if this is your first time tuning in, uh, please consider checking out all the different links that I have down there for my Facebook presence for the show. Uh, including a new YouTube channel that I just grabbed because I actually lost access to the old one. Um, if you are a regular V Radio subscriber, then please consider also subscribing to my YouTube channel. Tonight's show is actually kind of a continuation of the show that I had done earlier that got interrupted by an internet outage, and I wanted to be a little more thorough this time, so I took a few more notes. But a lot of it plays into exactly what Bernie was talking about in the clip that I just played. But this show is also not just addressed to people who support Bernie Sanders. It's also to people who supported Andrew Yang and people who supported Tulsi Gabbard. Because I think there's some very important things we need to talk about. And I did cover a lot of it in that other show, which is unfortunately fragmented. But I, you know, I'm going to leave that show up there because I am inevitably going to not cover everything that I did there just because I was kind of shooting from the hip on that day. So the system is not broken. It's working as intended. What do I mean by that? Well, you hear people say all the time that the system isn't broken. And I'm going to go back into what I said as far as I've actually said this on a few broadcasts now, but I want to make sure that I definitely put it all in one place so that I have it available to people when I need to link this specific topic. So here it is. When I worked for Senator Mike Gravel, he was interested in drafting a new constitutional amendment that would allow the people to use democratic referendums to affect federal law and federal issues. Basically like the referendum systems that you see on the state level that sometimes a ballot initiative will be put forward by citizens of a given state and then it'll change the laws in that state. You know, it was helpful in legalizing medical marijuana here in Michigan you know, and they don't always turn out great. I mean, sometimes referendums can also be negative because there's an issue of does the majority agree with you? But what a referendum does that representative government doesn't do is that a referendum is the will of the people, whereas representative government, you know, is the will of the representatives. And 
that's actually kind of what I'm getting into here now as far as to why the system is the way it is. And we keep talking about the fact that it's broken as if it ever really worked. And it never really did. Going all the way back to the foundation of this country. But a lot of people don't know that because it isn't really commonly spoken about in the history books. So I'm going to speak about it here. First of all, when the colonies were first formed, we actually governed ourselves primarily by decentralized, basically a decentralized series of democratic referendums. You'd have a town hall meeting. You'd discuss an issue with your community and then give your views on that. And then everybody would vote. And at the end of that vote, if you still didn't agree, you were pretty much free to go do what you want. If you watch the movie The Patriot, which, mind you, is a fiction film, but one of the things that they did get right was that there were democratic referendums in colonial times where the town would get together and discuss what they were going to do. And that included whether or not they were going to go to war with the British. It also included whether or not at one time anyway, if they were going to ratify the constitution. So you have all these colonies and they're made up of different demographics, both monetarily and ideologically. And the, the issue at play, and this is one of the things that other backdrops that was going on at the time, the little, you know, few people know about is the fact that, um, there were still a wealthy aristocracy very much at play in the politics of the early United States. It was never a situation of for the people, by the people entirely. Uh, there were people on two sides of the argument. You know, I don't actually remember exactly the names of the two groups. I know one of them was called the Federalists, uh, but one of them was, I believe, led by Alexander Hamilton, and the other one was led by Thomas Jefferson. And Thomas Jefferson's group, you know, was a bit more about individual rights for all people. And Alexander Hamilton's group was a bit more on the status side and the, you know, the right of the government. And so things like your Bill of Rights that you take so seriously, for good reason, were a concession. As in the plutocrats, plutocrats are basically wealthy people who feel that the wealthy should govern the nation that they live in. The plutocrats essentially conceded to the idea of having a Bill of Rights, you know, the um, you know, first you know, amendments to the Constitution. It was never actually in the interest of the wealthy. They pretty much just wanted to run the country. Another one of the things that kind of brought this issue to bear was that at the end of the Revolutionary War, they had won the revolution, but an awful lot of soldiers actually didn't get paid. And the majority of the soldiers were poor. So that created a situation where there was actually a real concern on the part of the wealthy that the poor might rise up and overthrow them. So anyway, going back to this issue of ratifying the Constitution, one of the things that came up, there was a good portion of the colonies that did not approve of slavery. Then there was another portion of the colonies that absolutely needed slavery to be able to make the economy of their given states or, well, future states work. And this topic was something of huge controversy, and it also led to problems in ratifying the Constitution. Now, make no mistake, we are often told that our founding fathers were these pinnacles of freedom. It's easy to forget the fact that just about all of them were fantastically wealthy, and while they also did talk a lot about property rights and things like that, they also thought people were property. Even Thomas Jefferson, who I would argue is probably my favorite of the founding fathers, he actually owned more slaves than the rest of the founding fathers. And that's one of the key issues I don't think people really realize. And it's largely because of the fact that our education system ignores this 
because they want you to have trust in the system and they want you to believe that you're free even within the plutocratic system. So basically, they tried to ratify the Constitution with slavery in it. Some of the colonies had large populations of Quakers. I don't know if you're familiar with the Society of Friends, but they're a very pacifistic group, and they completely were against slavery. So when they tried to ratify the Constitution via the town halls, that you know the Democratic town halls, it wasn't working. And it was because of the fact that the, they couldn't get all the colonies to agree on this issue of slavery. So to get around this issue, the wealthy basically started with a, a heavy propaganda campaign against democracy as a whole. You know, they'd say democracy is two wolves and a sheep deciding what's for dinner, et cetera, et cetera. And the whole objective of that was to try to make sure, you know, that people didn't trust democracy anymore. You know, and there is an issue of tyranny and majority. That's not that it's not that it never happens. The problem is, is that the minority that was so worried about themselves all had one thing in common. They were all fantastically wealthy and they wanted to stay that way, regardless of what happened to anybody else in the colonies. Does that sound familiar to you? That's because that situation never actually ended. It's been going on since the foundation of this country. So anyway, um, they eventually decided, well, let's just pitch this idea of a delegate system. You know, we're going to have the different colonies elect delegates, and then those people are going to go to the Constitutional Convention, and then those people are going to ratify the Constitution. So who do you think is going to win the elections for these delegate positions. It's not going to be a blacksmith. It's going to be a farmer. You know, it's going to be wealthy aristocrats of the colonies. It's certainly not going to be any commoner. So because they can't, they don't have the money to be traveling around, you know, their colony trying to get elected for these positions. It's always going to be a wealthy person, or at least the vast majority of the time. Does that sound familiar to you? Essentially, that the people who are going to have the power to draft our Constitution were all going to basically be picked from the same elite plutocrat. You know, I don't I mean, it wouldn't have been just one percent at that time because wealth inequality was still bad, but not as bad as it is now, arguably. I mean, I'd have to check the statistics on that. But the point is, is that it's the same group of people. It's the same group of wealthy people who all had their interests, you know, above everyone else's essentially. Now, so moving forward. They convinced everybody to go with the delegate system, and then they had the Constitutional Convention, and at the Constitutional Convention, they locked the doors, because what was going on inside was a big secret, <laughs> and what ended up coming out the other side, a constitution of the colonies to create the United States where slavery is legal. Put that in for a second. Really think about it, that essentially the wealthy of this country developed a system where we give away our power to delegates who are always wealthy people, handpicked for us. We're not giving any other choices. And that's how we got the system that we're in right now. That hasn't changed. So, moving right along, move on into our present day. Just like Bernie pointed out, how does our electoral system really work? It's all about who gets the campaign donations. Everybody kind of knows that. Everybody understands that. And I wouldn't even say necessarily that anybody, well, at least nobody who isn't wealthy, approves of that. But they just kind of accept it. 
because we've been more or less programmed, whether through our education system or just the herd mentality, you know, pressuring us to think it's okay because everybody else seems to think it's okay. But that's, you know, that system is what creates this circumstances that just continue to send all of the wealth to the top and the ever shrinking amount of wealth that gets to the bottom. Common sense. We are in a situation where our politicians are utterly beholden, utterly beholden to the corporations that sponsor their campaigns. A large part of this is because of the sheeple factor. There are a lot of voters, especially on the state level, state level, because I ran for Congress. There are a lot of voters who actually don't even know who their congressman is. When I ran for Congress, I'd go to voter forums, I'd go to debates, you know, and generally a lot of people couldn't even tell me who the congressman was in their district. You know, they couldn't tell me who their senators were half the time. They certainly didn't know who any of their state senators or congressmen were. Um, sometimes they didn't know who their governor was. And the reason for this is that these people essentially will just go to the polls and vote party lines. So they don't even, you know, they just look, well, here's the Republican. I'll just scribble that in, you know, if they happen to be a Republican. Very rarely does anything change. That's why there's so many incumbents. And that's why incumbents are so hard to shake. Unless there's some major scandal that makes its way into the mainstream media somehow, you know, you're just not, you're not going to be able to do it. So brings me to the party system. The party system is not in our constitution. It essentially functions almost like a computer virus or a malware in our constitution. And George Washington in his farewell address made this very clear because he was leaving the White House and he was the only president in the history of the United States who was not part of a political party. And he said he was very wary of the party system because he was concerned that people would make decisions based on what was best for their party and not what was necessarily best for the nation. And that was exactly what happened. More to the point, these parties essentially now control who gets elected. They control ballot access. They control who gets into the debates. And so now, even though the Constitution was never designed for this extra layer of bureaucracy that is controlled by plutocrats, that's what we have. People keep saying things like, why doesn't Bernie run third party? Why doesn't Tulsi run third party? Well, if you study your history, not even going that far back, you can learn about Ross Perot. Ross Perot was a very wealthy man, but actually a very well-intentioned one. You can still watch his infomercial on YouTube where somebody, because somebody uploaded it. Note I said infomercial. He was an independent candidate for president. And in order to get any kind of media coverage, he had to buy himself an infomercial because people were trying to ignore him. What else is funny about his infomercial is that just about everything he said, specifically about NAFTA, came true. All of it. Like Nostradamus. Every element of it. The job losses, the, the effects of the economy, it's all there. Everything he said was going to happen, happened. And everybody looked at him like he was a crackpot. So NAFTA, brought to you by Bill Clinton. So one of the things that Ross Perot said was that as he was basically giving up, because he, he, he tried and he, he did get a lot of support, but he pointed out that the electoral college system essentially is entirely dominated by Democrats and Republicans. The Democrats and Republicans disagree on a lot of things. One thing they definitely do agree on, however, is that they don't want any upstart independents or third-party candidates taking their control of the system. 
The duopoly is a cartel. It works together. They understand that at the end of the day, they would still rather that one of the corporate whore, you know, candidates is the one who wins. And that's why you have situations like we have now, which is where the Democratic Party has decided that they would rather lose to Trump and make no mistake, Joe Biden will lose to Trump than to allow Bernie Sanders to be elected. The big fear that they have is that they will lose control, that Bernie's ideas will become too popular and that it'll start to affect, you know, or rather will start to make it difficult for other people to get elected. But the other problem with the party system is that it's because it's not in the constitution. If one of the parties doesn't actually play fair, there's absolutely nothing you can do about that. That's the reason why when there was a lawsuit in 2016 filed by people who were angry at the DNC because it had been revealed that they screwed over Bernie Sanders. The, during the course of the lawsuit, the lawyers went on the official record, meaning the lawyers for the DNC, defending what they did, saying that it was actually, actually completely legal for them to just you know, pick anybody they wanted, that they could pull people out of a hat, you know, that they could, I mean, and, and they weren't lying, you know, that, that was the absolute truth. You know, it, it wasn't like it was something, you know, that they were saying that was hyperbole, you know, it was just absolutely true. And they won the lawsuit because the reality is the Democratic Party and the Republican Party and all of the parties are actually just private organizations and they're not actually government bodies. Now, that means, and I think this plays into one of the things that I put up Again, because we're seeing a lot of issues with the exit polls, because the exit polls are deviating from the vote totals in double digits. I believe the United Nations says it's like 4% generally indicates that there's fraud. Well, in some of these states, it's as much as 10, 12%. So there's obvious fraud going on. I actually just went back and rewatched an episode, or rather, it wasn't an episode, it was a film called Hacking Democracy that demonstrated just how easy it is to hack these machines. So the problem, and I will get back to this later, I might add, but the problem now is that at this point, the, the Democratic Party is emboldened by the result of that lawsuit because they could get caught red-handed at this point, and there's nothing we could do about it. We could literally just catch them rigging the machines, and it wouldn't matter. Because they're not doing anything illegal. They don't want to just brazenly do it outwardly because they still want us to believe, you know, in the American dream, because you have to be asleep to believe, you have to be asleep to believe it, as George Carlin said. So anyway, we are not really a democracy. Our democracy essentially is an illusion. Like George Carlin said in the clip that I keep playing, you know, the politicians are there to give you the illusion of choice. You don't have a choice. You have owners. They own you. Okay. Basically there to give us an illusion of choice. So it goes all the way back to the founding fathers and the idea that we should convince the colonists to stop having democratic town hall meetings and to start electing wealthy people to make all their decisions for them. And more importantly, brainwash them into thinking that that was right and just and the best way that it should be done, and that anything short of that was tyranny. That us electing wealthy people to do all of our decision-making 
was the right course and that anything less was tyranny. Now, one of the things that I explained earlier and this you know, on the previous broadcast that I tried to do on this topic, that a lot of people who are new to politics, I don't think they understand. And, and the reason that this comes up is that there are Andrew Yang supporters, Tulsi Gabbard supporters who are both angry at their candidates that they supported for dropping out or for endorsing Biden, you know, and part of, and I understand what the frustration is that the problem is, is that politics is a long game. Elections are just battles in a war. And when you're fighting a war, you have to assess very carefully and strategically how much of your personal resources you're willing to extinguish in a single battle towards your overall objective. So, this war is also a war of ideas. Andrew Yang ran for the purpose of trying to draw attention to the UBI, the Freedom Dividend, the Universal Personal, you know, Basic Income. And everybody thought it was this crazy, silly, harebrained idea. Because he ran for a president and talked about it and got it into the, the parlance of everybody, now all of a sudden you have politicians that are talking about UBI as a solution to the coronavirus crisis. If Andrew Yang had not run for president, they might have come up with something similar, but the fact that it was just sitting there waiting to be looked at as an idea was solely an issue brought about by his candidacy for president. So what that means is, even if Andrew Yang did not win the nomination this time, I might add, because he's probably still in it, he still got his ideas into into the forefront, and that is a victory. Ron Paul in 2008 ran on a platform of trying to draw attention to civil rights issues, because civil liberties issues because of the Patriot Act. He brought a lot of attention to what was in the Patriot Act. He brought a lot of attention to what was in the Military Commissions Act. He also brought a lot of attention to the problems with the Iraq War. This is also why the media attacked him and removed him quickly. People like think that this is only a Democratic Party issue. Well, When Ron Paul openly spoke about what was wrong with our foreign policy and spoke honestly about why we have so many enemies overseas, they removed him from the dates as close as from the debates as fast as possible. Um, And they, you guys talk about being concerned about, for example, Tulsi not getting into debates. Ron Paul actually polled higher than Rudy Giuliani in every state. Yet, for some reason, Rudy Giuliani kept getting into the debates, and they kept telling Ron Paul that he wasn't polling high enough to get into the debates. The same thing happened to Senator Mike Gravel. He was also an anti-war candidate. The same thing happened to Congressman Dennis Kucinich, who was also an anti-war candidate. And Congressman Kucinich was also, was also a Civil Rights Anti-Patriot Act candidate, so was Gravel in his own way. Um, these are all things that they did not want people talking about. So when you guys are talking about like being angry about the amount of media coverage that you have, you have no idea how good you have it. Because Ron Paul also had enormous rallies that would draw thousands of people, and the media would literally just pretend it wasn't happening. So it, it, the, the idea that you're getting any coverage for your candidate, you, you guys, again, you don't know how good you have it. So anyway, um, sometimes this means that a candidate is going to have to strategically make a decision. 
I'm sure that Andrew Yang and Tulsi Gabbard and even Bernie Sanders would like to win the nomination. They didn't, or Bernie might. I mean, who knows what can happen now. But he didn't win it in 2016. But him running for for president, one of the first things I noticed when the debate started in 2020 was that all of a sudden all these crazy ideas from 2016 that Bernie Sanders had were spilling out of the mouths of just about everybody on the stage. He had succeeded in changing the narrative. So that's another aspect to how you can win battles that, you know, that actually move towards the war. And even if you lose a given battle, sometimes you can inflict enough casualties on your opponent to set up another battle that will allow you to win that battle later towards the path of winning the war. So you have the war of ideas, you know, and you have the war of ideology. These things are all there. Like the other thing is, is that Bernie Sanders has been drawing attention to, you know, to Medicare for all, and it keeps polling extremely high. And even though he's quote unquote losing, I'm putting that in quotes, all these primaries, Everybody who gets polled about Medicare for all, a large, vast majority of them are supporting it right now. So um, when your candidate does certain things, you have to recognize that there are a lot of things that are probably going on behind the scenes that you're not aware of, that they can't bring you in, up to speed on because of the fact that if they do, it'll be detrimental to their final goal. This is true of candidates who have nefarious goals as much as it is of candidates who have positive goals they both have to play the game there's no other way around it we don't live in an idealistic perfect world where every candidate can get up and tell the truth and win elections because that's not how the system works again not broken working is intended so that means that sometimes a candidate might have to do something like endorse somebody that you don't like People in the Tulsi Gabbard camp and in the Andrew Yang camp, I see them all the time complaining that Bernie Sanders eventually helped Clinton in 2016. That's what is expected of anybody. And if you don't do this, you burn bridges. So you guys are all upset about that. But that's the reason why Bernie was at any point able to be the front runner this year is because of bridges that he didn't burn in 2016. The same thing is true for Andrew Yang and for Tulsi Gabbard saying they support the presumptive nominee, Joe Biden. Now, regardless of what they do or say, you're still free to vote any way you want. And I, for one, will never vote for Joe Biden. To be clear, it's not a Bernie bro thing and it's not a Bernie or bust thing. I made a decision in 2008 when I was working for Senator Gravel that I would never vote for a candidate who voted for Iraq and that I would never vote for a candidate who voted for or supported NAFTA because I live in Michigan and I watch NAFTA annihilate our economy. It turned Detroit and Flint that used to be two bustling business places into craters, economic craters. And the people who supported it, well, there were two of them on the ballot for the Democratic primary in 2008, Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden. Then in 2016, I could have voted for Hillary Clinton and did not because she voted for Iraq and she campaigned for NAFTA. I'm also not going to vote for Joe Biden in 2020 
because he voted for Iraq and he campaigned for NAFTA. And now he's a rapist. Well, not that he's just started raping people now, but that's pretty much a no-brainer. No, I'm not doing it. This is a, this is a, you know, a no-starter, as Pelosi would call it. So absolutely not. However, you have to understand that your candidates are working within the system. And even if they are not corrupted by that system, inevitably there are certain things, certain strategic moves that they have to play in order to be able to achieve their goals. And if they don't make those moves, they just lose. Jimmy Dore lives in kind of a fantasy world that candidates should all just be able to get up and yell and scream the way he does during his broadcast. The problem is, is that doesn't work. And one of the reasons I can tell you that is that I worked for and admire a guy who did that because Mike Gravel did that. He called out Hillary Clinton. He called out Obama. He kept making really inconvenient points about the fact that For example, Hillary Clinton was trying to say she was an anti-war candidate during one of the debates, and his quote was, I believe, this is fantasy land. We're talking about ending the war, and then we voted for a war right today. There was a vote in the Senate today. You know, basically, he went on to detail the fact that there was a resolution written by Joe Lieberman, the same guy who put together the Iraq War resolution, that would allow George Bush to attack Iran. Hillary voted for it. And that was the right thing to do. And yeah, it definitely got him a lot of attention, but it also got him out of the debates as fast as possible. The only reason why Bernie is getting any attention from the media, it's not because they like him. It's because he's polling high enough. That's our support manifesting. In 2008, a candidate like him would not have gotten any media attention and therefore would not have gone anywhere because the, the internet was only just starting to become a factor into how we, co- we pick our candidates. So anyway, politics is a long game. Again, elections are battles. Voting for bills are battles. And in some cases, you're going to have to make compromises on those too. So speaking of bills, the progressives fighting one another, okay, And there's these personalities that are coming out like Matt Stoller, who just kind of pops up out of nowhere to drop bombs on Bernie Sanders on every progressive show that he can get onto. Now I've done some exposés about him on YouTube and I revealed that the guy is funded by the Rockefellers, JP Morgan Chase. I'm going to thank Nicole for bringing this to my attention. She knows who she is. Um, Anyway, he was part of a group called new America New America has their donor list up, and it includes J.P. Morgan Chase, the Rockefeller Foundation, Walmart, et cetera, et cetera. So do I think that there's a coincidence as to why a guy with that kind of funding is coming on Jimmy Dore to complain about Bernie Sanders? I don't think that's a coincidence at all. But that brings us to the stimulus bill that everybody's so angry about. Here's the deal. One senator, or even a small group of them, cannot just make a bill happen they can submit them but until they're put on the agenda brought to a vote which is not something that you can just make happen all by yourself there has to be a good degree of support to make that happen medicare for all for example has a bunch of co-sponsors and is just sitting there the circumstances that we were just in is this the pandemic essentially is making the poor unable to pay their rent which was due in about two or three days. 
They voted on this thing like last Friday. And it's easy for guys like Stoller to try to say that they should have organized and, you know, found some other way to get this bill changed or whatever. But leading up to that vote, there was already two bills that were proposed, one by the um, Democrats and one by the Republicans. And they both somehow managed to deftly dodge giving any money to the poor. The Democrat version basically addressed it through paid sick leave. And then they put a little caption in there that anybody who worked for a company that had over 500 employees did not have to pay the paid sick leave. So in other words, the only people who were going to get it were people who worked for small businesses. And corporations who all have generally over 500 employees, not all of them, but all the big ones anyway, aren't going to pay anything. So when Stoller talks about things like the Democrats needed to get organized, he's leaving out the fact that the vast majority of Democrats don't give a shit about the poor. They pay lip service to it. But the majority of the Democrats and the Republicans and pretty much all the officials in our government, well, they're all plutocrats. Remember, it's not broken. It's working as intended. They're all owned by wealthy people. We are not a priority to wealthy people. And anything they give us is a concession. That, that's just the way it is. George Carlin mentioned that too, that he felt like a lot of our quote-unquote victories were just concessions. And what he was getting at was that they recognize that if we make enough noise, they're going to have to give us certain things. So, for example, he felt that women getting the vote was an example of one of those concessions. Not that he didn't support it. Of course he did. The point is, is that it didn't just happen because people voted. It happened because the wealthy realized that they have to throw us a bone every now and then because if they don't, well, remember what happened to Marie Antoinette when she said, let them eat cake. They have to keep us in line. And some of that is the carrot and some of that is the stick. So we have this situation where the poor are now basically the hostages. This is a hostage crisis because people like Bernie, AOC, Tulsi, etc., they care about us. But we're not the priority. So when Stoller says things like they had to get organized, he's not being realistic. That is, of course, unless we want to hold up the stimulus a couple weeks longer when rent's about to be due, when utilities are about to be due, when car payments are about to be due. It, Stoller acts like if they had just held up the bill, that somehow, mysteriously, Bernie Sanders would be able to garner enough support to override all of the corporate influence that went into that bill all by himself. And on every show that he goes on, whether it's Rising, Jimmy Dore, you know, he, he just rails on Sanders so much that you would think Sanders wrote the bill. The few things that Sanders did, now there's controversy about this, but Democracy Now! reports that Sanders is the person who ensured that there was the provision for unemployment when there were some, uh, from, I watched this part live, there were some Republicans who were trying to get an amendment to remove the extra unemployment from the bill. Sanders did step forward and said, look, you're not going to do that. If you guys do try to hold up the bill doing this, I'm going to write something to hold up the bill to try to go after the pork that's in this bill. 
And I've played, actually, I made a video about Tom Stoller. I made two videos about this issue, including a video that includes everything that Bernie Sanders said over the course of his argument, which you can find on C-SPAN. You want to learn what's going on in the Senate, but specifically when there's important things going on, go watch C-SPAN. It's live, it's unfiltered, and it's free. And that's when you can see what's actually happening in the House. That's when you can see what's actually happening in the Senate. It's literally unfiltered politics. And they're depending on you not bothering to go to look at it. But it's sitting there right there. So I put together a clip. And if you go to my YouTube channel, um, go to the YouTube, (laughs) as Bernie would say, um, which there's a link to in the description of this broadcast. I made two videos covering this topic. Now, these videos are not meant to be entertaining. They're just meant to be informative. So take that for what you will. Anyway, so there is no magic formula that allows a single senator to end a bill without also incurring a bunch of other penalties as far as whether or not the media would have used it against Bernie, which you got to know they would have. Biden would have used it against Bernie. But honestly, I don't think any of I think all those things are secondary to what Bernie's real concern is would be all the poor people who are not going to be able to make rent. So he could either point out what was in the bill, which he did, and point out what he didn't agree with, which he did, contrary to what Stoller said. He did it on his own page, he did it on TV, and he did it right there on C-SPAN during the debate, on the official record with the Senate. So he did what he could with the crap that he's given. The reason why Bernie Sanders is the amendment king is that he puts amendments into other people's bills. This is not out of laziness or cowardice, as Matt Stoller says. This is because he can't get bills that he authored that are full of nothing but good stuff for the people to be a priority that are not beneficial to corporations. That, that's what it amounts to. The corporations don't want us getting money. They like us right where we were with, our, with, their, with their boots on our throat. I remember exactly what that was like during the recession. It's the same thing here. So it's unrealistic and unfair to blame all of this on Bernie, which is something that Amy from Democracy Now! kind of pointed out to him. I wish she had went ahead and pushed the issue. Everybody else, Jimmy Dore just lapped it up like, you know, yeah, oh, yeah, you're right. Because he'll just take anything that's negative about Bernie right now and, and not even examine it critically on rising, he didn't do it as as vigorously. I think if he had, Crystal would have eventually kind of intervened. But you know, um, but on Democracy Now, Amy just literally just played a clip of Bernie Sanders doing the opposite of what Solar has been saying he's been doing, which was nothing. So, anyway, when it comes to bills, again, the system isn't broken; it's working as intended. Wealthy people have all of the influence over bills. And if you don't understand that, you don't recognize that essentially the only way that anything good gets done is almost by guerrilla politics. Senator Gravel talked about this, that the only way he could get anything done as a lone senator was to essentially cheat. He could filibuster if, as long as there wasn't enough support to vote for cloture. Um, Cloture was the issue that I brought up in my video that essentially, even if Bernie had held up the bill, any bill that's going to pass 96 to zero is going to get a cloture vote and it's going to go through anyway. So you can't just stop it indefinitely. But anyway, um, 
there's, as I was getting at, it, unless there is a monetary interest in bringing a bill to the forefront, it's not going to go anywhere. And that's not because Bernie's a coward. It's not because Bernie's lazy. That's because we live in a plutocratic system, period. The rest of it is an illusion. And it's, again, working as intended. So I'm going to move on here specifically back to the issue of the progressive candidate supporters fighting each other. I'm on a lot of different groups. I'm on Tulsi groups, Sanders groups, Yang groups. I've even been on a couple of Tom Steyer groups. And generally what I recognize is this. The supporters of each other, of these different candidates, they all hate one another. Like the Bernie bros, quote unquote, Bernie supporters get the reputation for this. But Tulsi supporters are just as nasty. You know, um, Yang supporters there are as well. You know, like they all kind of hero worship their guy. And note I said worship because it becomes religious. It's not rational in many cases, which is also why when your candidate commits, quote unquote, blasphemy, you turn on them, even though they're just working with what they have. So anyway, um, things in particular that keeps bothering me because it's simply irrational is Tulsi Gabbard supporters who say that Bernie Sanders betrayed Tulsi Gabbard. When I ask them how, they say because he didn't do enough, I guess, to stand up for her or whatever. And first of all, let's be real for a second. I like Tulsi Gabbard, too. And I'm pretty confident Bernie likes Tulsi, too. But they are still opponents in the same race. They're, they're against each other in this race. This is a competition. You know, even if you're friends with somebody and you're playing Monopoly with them, you don't give them part of your Monopoly money. You know, even if you're, you know, that, I mean, that's the whole point. It, they're, they're competing against each other. Yes, they like each other. But, you know, in fact, yes, they agree on more than they disagree on, which is why Tulsi Gabbard said on Joe, her first Joe Rogan interview that Bernie Sanders is one of the few people that she would be P for. But at the end of the day, one of the things that is hurting the progressives in this primary, provided we leave the voter fraud out of it or election fraud, is that the progressive base is entirely divided and the conservative or not, it's funny that I Freudian slipped conservative because they're basically like fake fake Democrats that are more or less like light Republicans are all unified. And that became extremely clear on Super Tuesday because all of the corporate whore Democrats dropped out and endorsed Biden. And then the progressives, what did they do? Well, Yang had already dropped out and Tulsi Gabbard stayed in. And this wasn't even necessarily relevant because Tulsi actually didn't really pull a lot of people. And then Bernie Sanders stayed in obviously and then elizabeth warren stayed in just long enough to screw over bernie on super tuesday by dividing the progressive vote and then now she then she drops out couldn't have done it before that she did it then and i honestly believe to this day that they've all the establishment democrats were on a conference call discussing that this is what they were going to do people have speculated that barack obama might have had something to do with it i don't know But the point that's relevant here to what I was saying about Tulsi supporters versus Sanders supporters is this. There is nothing Bernie Sanders could have done more for her 
than he did that would have actually been effective. And even if he had done more, it's time to be real. The girl got two delegates. She gets less votes in states than people who are not even campaigning. Now, that could also be election fraud. No question. She is by no means a friend of the DNC. They are not happy with her. But it doesn't change the fact that her impact in the situation is just not as relevant to anybody outside of the people on the fringe who actually value her as a candidate. And I consider myself one of those people. I really wanted to see a Bernie Tulsi ticket. But at the end of the day, like I remember some idiot who was running a Tulsi group who kept saying, you know, I am the, you know, the head moderator of Tulsi Gabbard for America, as if he was like trying to assume that he was uh, like trying to pretend he was an official campaign guy or something when he was really just running a Facebook group. But anyway, he was suggesting that when the town halls happened, that if Bernie Sanders was really a good friend, he should, you know, um, boycott the town halls until they allowed, you know, Tulsi Gabbard to have a town hall spot. Now, the media doesn't like Bernie Sanders. And if you don't believe that, all you got to do is listen to them, you know, just rip him to pieces on every issue. Find some way to twist every issue. So you're trying to tell me that if Bernie had said, I'm not going to come to town halls until you include Tulsi Gabbard, that the media would just go, oh, gee, my bad. <laughs> Sorry, Mr. Sanders. Yeah, we'll let her in. No problem. They don't want to give Bernie town halls. They don't have any choice. So they're not just going to suddenly bring Tulsi into the situation just because Bernie said so. They don't like him either. I mean, just go back and listen to what they say. I mean, God, I mean, the Chris Matthews stuff would probably be the most extreme, but the majority of the pundits have nothing nice to say about Bernie Sanders, and they begrudgingly accept that he is there. Again, you kids don't know how great you got it. Come back to 2008, and I'll show you what it was like to support a candidate who talked anything like Bernie Sanders. You, you don't exist. Everybody's Tulsi at that point. That's how it was. Everybody good anyway. Okay. So, again, nobody's ever been able to explain to me what it is exactly that Bernie Sanders was supposed to do. They would either, A, be effective in getting Tulsi into the debates, or B, not further divide the progressive vote. So let's say that Tulsi did surge because of something that Bernie did. She still wasn't going to be able to get to the point that she was going to overcome everybody else or, or be a really significant factor. She might have been able to slide into, say, like Amy Clouchabar's spot. Okay, so then we, we get the Amy Clouchabar level, kick Amy down. That also brings Bernie down. And then Joe Biden wins the nomination. Or Pete Buttigieg wins Iowa and New Hampshire. That's what would have changed. That's it. It wouldn't have, Tulsi would not have won, and it would have just helped Bernie lose. That's all that would have happened. You guys, I get it. I like Tulsi Gabbard. But if you think anything else was going to happen, you you need to actually start examining this clearly. And when I monitor Tulsi groups, I constantly see people saying stuff like, she needs to unsuspend her campaign. Now is the time. The girls got two delegates. Two. Two. You can do whatever you want, but at the end of the day, if the progressives want to have like a hope or a prayer, then they've got to be willing to do what the opposition did and get behind Bernie Sanders. That's it. Or 
you know, get ready for Joe Biden. Bernie Sanders' success is not him backstabbing Tulsi Gabbard. Tulsi Gabbard's failures are not Bernie Sanders' fault. And this idea that he backstabbed her or something, he didn't call up the networks and tell them not to feature her. He didn't do anything to her. The one time that actually he even spoke about her on the trail was to say that Hillary Clinton's, you know, suggestion that she was a Russian asset was ridiculous. But that's never enough. I I don't really know even what in Tulsi supporters' minds would have been enough. I, I think, like, you know, Bernie would have had to have, like, held a rally specifically for her or maybe dropped out of the race and endorsed her. Nothing short of that would have been enough for them because they can never articulate exactly what it is that he should have done differently. And let me tell you why. You guys are falling for social engineering. There are people who have it as their goal to divide us and conquer us. There are Yang supporters who don't, you know, who are basically just kind of hooked on the idea of Andrew Yang. And I get it. He's a cool guy, but they're also not willing to support Bernie. And, you know, it, it comes back to the same thing. If you think that Joe Biden is closer to Andrew Yang than, than Bernie Sanders, I, no. Okay. I mean, I read Andrew Yang's book. I, I'm not just like a guy who also thought he was kind of cool. I read his entire book and he's a great guy, but Bernie Sanders is a hell of a lot closer to his worldview. And Andrew Yang has said something very similar to that himself than Joe Biden, without a doubt. Now, so I, I talked a little bit about endorsements and people were upset that Andrew Yang was offered a position in Joe Biden's campaign or well not his campaign his future administration well that's nothing to be upset about either because again politics is a long game and sometimes these sorts of things are part of your strategy for your long-term strategy so if you want to see andrew yang 2024 one of the things that holds andrew back is that he doesn't have any government experience now I know Joe Biden's not going to beat Donald Trump, but let's say that he did. And then Andrew Yang accepts a cabinet position or even the VP slot, which he won't because Biden says he wants a woman. But still, Andrew in 2024. Remember, battles in a larger war. Not about 2020 anymore. Now it's about 2024. So what does Andrew have to do to get there? His goal is not just to have principles but to actually get somewhere with those principles. And that's not going to happen if he doesn't play some of the game. It's the same thing with CNN. Everybody's upset about him going to CNN. What did going to CNN do? Well, now he has all the media attention he needs for his ideas. And they're asking him. I mean, have you watched him? Like they, they treat him like he's royalty, man. They're asking him questions. What is your view on this? What is your view on this? He, and remember, before that, he wasn't getting any media attention at all. He hasn't changed. He's still giving the same message. He's still being, and the funny thing now is that by the White House about, you know, giving them information about how the UBI works and what's the best way to do it. And like, you know, you know, how, you know, what kind of information do you have about the benefits and the negatives? And he gave it. Again, Yang Gang wins. Or he could have just said, F you, Joe Biden, and F you, CNN, 
and continued to be a candidate that was at that point only talked about in Facebook groups. And that would have been it. Long game. Long game. It's not just this one battle. You could think about it as like we're playing chess. And it's one move in the game. I moved a knight. That's one election. That's one endorsement. That's, you know, one concession here or whatever. You know, and that's just the way the system works. And anything short of that, any of this demanding that you just basically burn everything down, again, that will make you feel better to hear your candidate doing that. But it doesn't do anything for actually moving what you want to see done forward. It'll make you feel better. Like it would have made you all feel better if Bernie had just said, F you, Hillary Clinton, I'm not helping you. But it wouldn't have achieved anything. And at the end of the day, Bernie Sanders, beyond anything else, is devoted to the idea that Donald Trump is too dangerous to be president. Now, that's not my view in that, not that I'm a Trump supporter, but that I feel that Hillary Clinton is as dangerous or more. She was very hawkish. Um, she very pro-war. I honestly think if she were president, we would have invaded Syria. Um, I think that, you know, but regardless, that, that's what Bernie is thinking. Bernie didn't do that to sell out. That's the other thing. The, 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 the suggestion that you're selling out. If you're selling out, you're changing your views. You're not fighting for the things that you were fighting for before. And Andrew Yang is still the same guy. Tulsi Gabbard is still the same girl. And Bernie Sanders is still the same guy. Now, selling out like people who went from one direction to another, like, for example, say John McCain, who went from being the maverick to just being a standard neocon Republican. Yeah, that's selling out. But strategic movements within a political campaign, not just for one election, but again, for your agenda and what you want to see done, that's not selling out. Giving up on that agenda, that would be selling out. If you don't believe me, run for office. Go do it. Do something. Let me see you try it. I would love to, especially guys like Jimmy Dore who come off so arrogant. Trust me, run for office. Tom Stoller, he's so full of fire about what these candidates should be doing and those candidates should be doing. He helped write the previous bailout bill, by the way, the Dodd-Frank Act. So he basically brags about how he worked in the Senate and the Congress for six years. Okay, Tom, when are you running for office? I can't wait. Can't wait. You, you can show us how you're going to Jedi mind trick the entire Senate into going along with you. I mean, considering... Again, like my video reveals who he's actually funded by, I don't think he'd be proposing anything different anyway. And the fact that he helped write the previous bailout bill kind of leads me to wonder what his real motivations are. And what it sounds like to me, what his real motivations are, is to piss off the progressive base at the only people fighting for them and blame them for that bill. That's what I think his motive is. Otherwise, I can't wait to see you run for office, Tom. Let's see what you got. Two, Jimmy. Run for office, Jimmy Dore. 
You know, you often say there's a reason I'm not a politician. You're right. There is. You're too emotional. You're not rational. You're not strategic. This isn't a movie. They're not superheroes. They're human beings essentially trying to hack into a system that is not meant to work for poor people and make as much happen for the poor as possible. Again, working as intended. It's easy to claim that you're pure and perfect from the sidelines. That's a purity test that anybody can pass. I have a meme that sometimes comes up on my slideshow, like somebody, like a knight wearing older armor, and it says that a knight in shining armor has just simply never had their metal tested. So by all means, bring it. You want to call Bernie weak or he's a coward or, you know, or whatever. You know, that's another thing that's funny is that there's these weird contradictions about this sort of thing. If Bernie yells or AOC yells, then they're grandstanding. If they don't, then they're a kitten or they're a coward or they're lazy. Like there's no correct answer with these people. That's the sign, folks, of somebody who's got an agenda to bring somebody down, not somebody who's trying to help them or improve the situation. Maybe that's what his donors want. Now, time to stop complaining about candidates dropping out of the race. Like you act like you were betrayed. What did Andrew Yang say? I don't want to waste more of my donors' money. He didn't drop out of the race because he doesn't care about you. He dropped out of the race because he does care about you. I read his book. That guy is very familiar with just how bad the financial situation is. And that was before the pandemic. He doesn't want you to give him more money because he knows he's done the math that he's not going to win the nomination. So he wants you to save those resources. He's got other plans. Pay attention. There's going to be more good from that guy. And I hope he does run in 2024. I hope he runs for office somewhere else. I'd love to see him on C-SPAN, you know, as a congressman or a senator, you know, God, if he could be a governor, that'd be fantastic. You know, he wants to be a, a mayor. That's a good place to start, you know. But it, you guys can't just abandon a guy because he just gets out of a, a race that he's, he's obviously just not going to win. Again, what, what are we bringing up? It's for me, like, voter, voter fraud, election fraud is going to be like Epstein didn't kill himself. I'm just going to keep repeating it to, keep, to get it into your minds because it's also entirely possible that it's not that he failed in any way. Anyway, I'll get to that later in the broadcast, but politics politics is not a brawl. It's not a street fight. It's not a situation where I quit and therefore that's why I lost. It's, you know, I, in my previous broadcast, I said it wasn't a boxing match and I realized, no, that analogy isn't good. It is like a boxing match because you can fight your ass off, expend all of your resources, you know, give as good as you can and, and not give up and then... If you didn't knock the other guy out, we're at the 12th round, and then it goes to the judges. And then you lose anyway. Politics is a sociological game. It's weighing not just individual interactions, but the things that you do that will affect things sociologically, affect groups of people and their perceptions. And it's a very delicate process. And in many cases, it involves doing a lot of things 
that the person, the lay person, is not going to realize why they did them. So you guys can get upset at your candidates for dropping out, but it's not because they're cowards. It's because if the, that battle is not you know, at that time winnable, then you don't expend resources on it. That actually, once again, we talk about it being a war. Sun Tzu's Art of War. Sun Tzu said plainly, do not engage in the battle unless you are certain you can win. And if you can't win now, then reassess and wait for the time that you can. So don't give up on a candidate just because they've quit this election. I mean, God, Joe Biden ran like four times and now he's the front runner. I mean, under questionable circumstances, you know, but he had to bow out a bunch of times, too. So that also includes don't be upset at your candidates when they have to help the other candidates. At the end of the day, we have to recognize that, you know, the funny thing is, is it reminds me of the sport of wrestling. In the sport of wrestling, you can be on a team, but you may occasionally also have to compete against your teammates when you go to tournaments. But at the end of the day, you're still on the same team. And that's how party politics work. Inevitably, if you're running for the Democratic nomination or the Republican nomination, for that matter, you are expected by that team that if you're not going to win, you bow out and you help them. That, that's just what's expected of you. I don't like it. I guarantee you they don't like it. That doesn't change the fact that that's reality. And getting upset about it isn't going to help you because what will happen in your next attempt to run for office is because you didn't show unity when it's expected of you because you're on the same team, not because you're bending the knee or any of the other demeaning garbage that Jimmy keeps saying, but because you're technically on the same team. I don't like the team either. I don't like the majority of them. That's why I'm an independent because I can, I'm in Michigan. I can vote in the open primaries for anybody I want. I voted for you know, Republicans and Democrats, depending on what I thought of them. But most people are stuck in a team. And we can get into why you have to join one of these teams later, but it comes back, although I touched on it a lot at the beginning of the broadcast when I discussed that the political party system is not in the Constitution anyway. They're essentially like a duopoly, again, that wields extreme power over who we're allowed to vote for that was never intended. We've been over that. So inevitably, they have to help because they're trying to help their overall team win. And if you don't do this, you burn bridges that essentially mean that you will never ever succeed anywhere else. Tulsi Gabbard right now is paying the price for bucking the establishment in the Democratic Party. I think she was right to do it. It was very noble. It was the right thing to do. But it is also the reason why she's got two delegates. Working as intended. Not broken. A system designed by the elite for the elite. Working as intended. Now, now we're going to talk about exit poll deviations. And I once again put the picture, ironically, that was also featured on Jimmy Dore's show about this topic. I put it into the description of this broadcast. And what it amounts to is this. The exit poll deviations are enough to the point that the United Nations would have said that this was election fraud. The problem is, is that as I also talked about earlier, because of the party system, it's not fraud. That's the funny thing is it's not even fraud. 
Remember the different things that they said to us in 2016 when they were preparing to take everything away from Bernie? It's a straw poll. It's not meant to be a democratic process. This is them letting it slip. They weren't lying. The idea that this is an election is the part that's a lie. That's the part that's a lie. It's never been that way. and, And we basically have been hypnotized into believing that it's a legitimate election. Because that comes back to the illusion of choice that George Carlin was talking about. But anyway... Let's talk a little bit about strategies in elections then, because Jimmy Dore endlessly rails on Bernie for this. And there are other people who do, too, that Bernie should have been meaner or, you know, Bernie should have done this or Bernie should have done that. And then that would have somehow won these elections, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, well, if you guys think that because Jimmy keeps saying as he puts way too much emphasis on it, but he's like, you know, Bernie said that Joe's his friend. You know, Bernie said that Joe could beat, you know, Trump and et cetera. I've actually never heard him say the second one. I'm, I'm sure that he heard it. You know, Jimmy is not making that up, but I've never heard it. So it's not like it's something that Bernie says every day. And I listen to an awful lot of Bernie Sanders. But regardless, he said those things earlier and whooped Joe Biden's ass in Iowa and New Hampshire and Nevada. Those two things are not what's changing the election outcome. They're not. Joe Biden barely even registered, essentially. He went all the way down to like four or five, you know, like you know, even guys, Pete Buttigieg were beating him. Well, Buttigieg shot to the top. And I, I think the shadow app, which is just another example of, you know, election fraud would be a big reason for that. The guy donated a bunch of money to the company that wrote that app. And then the app was written by former Clinton staffers. So, yeah, fraud. And that's because of the fact that it was a caucus and it's much harder to rig a caucus. People are railing about how bad caucuses are. I hate to say it. I'm starting to think caucuses are a better idea because they also more closely resemble those town hall meetings we were talking about earlier where everybody could be counted and everybody knows how everybody voted because you can see it. And there are weaknesses to that, too, because, for example, you know, Tulsi Gabbard supporters in Iowa were actually in some cases like booed out of the caucus process like they were treated very badly. So there are negatives to it as well. But there are things we can do about that. What, what we can't do anything about is these black box voting machines. Again, watch Hacking Democracy. It's an, old, it's an old documentary, but it's still completely valid. Okay. Anyway, so the exit polls are showing, and, every, and everybody's reporting on this. But at the same time, they're talking about strategies. Okay, so Bernie's not being mean enough. That's the theory. Well, Bernie won Iowa. Joe Biden polled like third or fourth. I can't even remember. But everybody thought it was over for him until South Carolina. In South Carolina, I think, is when the real election fraud started. And I think the main reason why is that they had the sh- basically the, the shield you know, or the stealth mode for the election fraud because they had an excuse. The excuse was the black vote. Despite the fact, actually, I just read an article today that Bernie Sanders leads in donations from African-American voters. He somehow still lost the Joe Biden vote. Now, all the problems with the black community, I mean, deciding to support Joe Biden, segregationist, you know, just all of those things aside, it it doesn't change the fact that, you know, it's kind of interesting that he goes from like third or fourth to like first just because of that one thing. But okay, 
again, strategies. So Bernie was nice to Biden in states where Bernie got his or where Biden got his ass kicked. So I don't think that's what the problem is. We cannot rail on somebody for being too weak or being too loud or being this or being that in a rigged election. You can't even you can't any like comments that you make about campaign strategy at that point are irrelevant. It's ridiculous. It's like, you know, that's the the analogy I made and I've made it multiple times would be like Jimmy Dore bitching at Bernie for a failed strategy is why he's losing this election is like saying that somebody's a bad race car driver because they lost an auto race where somebody siphoned the gas out of their car. So we can't even comment on strategy at this point because it's obvious that these primaries are rigged. Really obvious. And Jimmy reported on that. So, so why is he at that point then in the, sometimes in the same show that he talks about the rigged primaries, he's still talking about failed strategies. Well, then people say, well, he needs to bring it up then. And the problem is people who bring up election fraud are labeled crazy conspiracy nuts. And then it gets buried. Why do you think nobody else is bringing it up? You know who it falls to to bring that up? Us. Alternative media. If Bernie brings this up at that point, it's not politically expedient. It will hurt him in the long run. And what does that mean? That means the media gives him less airtime. What does giving him less airtime mean? Well, that means less support. Again, you kids, go back to 2008. Because the media doesn't have to give you anything. They, they give you essentially only what will uh, you know, benefit them in the long run. Bernie Sanders starts getting up into the public interviews and talking about voter fraud. He'll be just as invisible as Tulsi Gabbard. Now, again, him talking about it would certainly make Jimmy feel better. It would make a bunch of other people feel better. But it wouldn't have actually accomplished anything. That, that's the question. It would hurt him more than help him. So if you're concerned about it, we, on the other hand, can say something about it, and we should. You guys think that, what, that, that they would just change that? All right, well, Biden's a rapist. The mainstream media is ghosting that. It's not going anywhere. You, you think if, if Bernie got up and just started talking about that, you know, like the whole thing would blow up. That's, and I'm hoping he does the rape thing. You could probably get away with bringing that up. But voter fraud, election fraud, they don't want that talked about. Because, again, that goes against the system working as intended. Okay? They need us to believe that these elections are ironclad. They need us to believe that our choice is actually relevant. It's not in that way. When they decide that they're going to pull out the fraud, then it doesn't matter what we do anymore. Saying that Bernie is not a leader or that he's weak or whatever because he can't win a rigged primary is asinine. And all it's doing is tearing down the only progressive that's fighting for us and undermining the progressive base as a whole. It's a waste of energy, and Bernie doesn't deserve that. Neither does anybody else who would, who would have the fucking balls to get up and run for election. 
you know, again, you want to talk about who's weak? You want to call people names? You want to call them a coward? You run for election. Let, let, let's see you do it. You don't want to do that. Oh, no, 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 I'm not a politician. Okay, then either shut the hell up and back up the guy who does have the courage to do it talking about politics. Stick to comedy because your understanding of politics is a joke. Now, I've run as a third-party candidate before. On the state level, you have one major problem. That is, as I pointed out earlier, the majority of voters vote party. If you're a third-party candidate, you're probably not even going to be considered. There are ways to go around that, and my biggest success was by going door-to-door myself as the candidate. That's how I got people to vote for me who were from the other parties. But the ability to do that outside of a small group is not very easy. Tulsi Gabbard said to Jimmy Dore when he brought up third parties that people needed to do something to get the infrastructure in place to make that work. And there's a lot involved in that that I don't think that people are familiar with. One of them is ballot access. People know that the Green Party exists. Do they know that the Green Party like, has to struggle to get on the ballot every year? And that in some cases, they're not even – not every year, but yeah – And in many cases, there are elections where they're not even on the ballot in all 50 states. Probably didn't know that, did you? There's a petition system involved. It's different in every state. It costs lots of money. In some states, it's like thousands of dollars just to register, to even be on the ballot. In other words, to even be able to participate in the election in that state. So there's work to be done. If you want to do that as a third party, I absolutely back you. I know that third parties are what needs to happen. That's why I've had a bunch of third party candidates on my show. But it's not realistic to tell Bernie to do it. Although the mainstream would love it if he did. Although, well, depending, actually, because they would be happy to finally have him out of their primary. But they wouldn't like the spoiler effect that would inevitably happen. I would say, and Brian Moore, who was on my podcast, he was a socialist party candidate in 2008, pointed out that things are changing right now, that this could be a good opportunity. But if that's going to happen, if it's going to work and be viable, then Yang supporters, Tulsi supporters, and Bernie supporters need to stop fighting each other and work together. And personalities like Jimmy Dore, who has a huge audience, need to stop tearing down individual progressives for not impaling themselves on the spear of politics and accomplishing nothing. What he should be doing instead is rallying our support. He has an audience. That's his responsibility. And that's why I address supporters of these three major candidates that I feel were essentially the most progressive that we had. Because that's what has to happen. If you want that to happen and actually be viable, first you've got to work on getting on the ballot. That's not easy. There's a whole bunch of other things that need to be done, too. But I can tell you, having been in the Libertarian Party, having helped with the Green Party, that what Tulsi's trying to say is not invalid. It's very true. 
And that's why Bernie, despite the fact, you know, him winning a Senate election in Vermont as an independent is very unusual, but it's largely predicated on the fact that the Democrats don't, they don't usually put up anybody against him because he has an understanding with them that they won't. If they did, it would be much more difficult. But what he can pull off in Vermont as an independent is extremely unusual as even this as a senator. Now we're going to talk about it as a president. And who strategically positions themselves to be in all of the electoral college positions? As I pointed out earlier when it came to the Ross Perot issue, who does that? Well, that would be the Republicans and the Democrats. Candidates do right now that is viable. Well, they can be spoilers. Um, They can influence mainstream candidates. So one of the things that Brian Moore taught me was that in history, the Socialist Party actually used to be very strong. And the reason why a lot of people call Democrats socialists is because the Democrats had to absorb a lot of the ideas of the Socialist Party to get votes away from the Socialist Party to the Democratic Party. The history of these parties changed dramatically, folks. The Democratic Party used to be the pro-slavery party, and now they're considered to be supposedly the pro-black party. There's a little irony for you. So you can run as a third-party candidate and affect the narrative in such a way that you can sway the politics. That's essentially what Bernie's doing within the Democratic primary, is that if they want to gain any of his base, then they have to start sounding like him. And yeah, they could lie about it and then eventually go to the election and, and just not do the things that they've been suggesting. But you know what, what it is that they basically lied and said they would support. You can only get away with that for so long, though, and eventually that unravels. So again, long game. So it was good to get all that off my chest. Um, I'm going to continue to have third-party candidates on. It is my advice to you, in the event that Bernie does not win the nomination, that we still uh, find a way. That's a good time, for example, to start throwing your, in my opinion anyway, throwing your vote to third-party candidates. People say you're throwing your vote away. I say that if we continue to demonstrate to the Democratic Party that we will accept whatever they throw at us, we're just encouraging them to continue to take advantage of us. It's an abusive relationship. Eventually, we have to make the decision to stop doing that. That's the side I'm on. If anybody at that point decides they're going to vote blue no matter who, okay, I won't fault you for that. It's not what I'm going to do. I hope you've enjoyed this broadcast. I'm going to log off now. And I'm going to leave you with a clip from George Carlin that I've played a lot. But I think it plays in very well with the clip of Bernie Sanders talking that I played at the beginning. Thanks again. But there's a reason. There's a reason. There's a reason for this. There's a reason education sucks, and it's the same reason that it will never, ever, ever be fixed. It's never going to get any better. Don't look for it. Be happy with what you got. Because the owners of this country don't want that. I'm talking about the real owners now. The big, the wealthy, that, 
The real owners, the big wealthy business interests that control things and make all the important decisions. Forget the politicians. They're, they're, they're irrelevant. The politicians are put there to give you the idea that you have freedom of choice. You don't. You have no choice. You have owners. They own you. They own everything. They own all the important land. They own and control the corporations. They've long since bought and paid for the Senate, the Congress, the state houses, the city halls. They got the judges in their back pockets. And they own all the big media, media news, all the big media companies, so they control just about all of the news and information you get to hear. They got you by the balls. They, they spend billions of dollars every year lobbying, lobbying to get what they want. Well, we know what they want. They want more for themselves and less for everybody else. But I'll tell you what they don't want. They don't want a population of citizens capable of critical thinking. They don't want well-informed, well-educated people capable of critical thinking. They're not interested in that. That doesn't help them. That's against their interests. That's right. You know something? They don't want people who are smart enough to sit around the kitchen table to figure out how badly they're getting fucked by a system that threw them overboard 30 fucking years ago. They don't want that. You know what they want? They want obedient workers. Obedient workers. People who are just smart enough to run the machines and do the paperwork and just dumb enough to passively accept all these increasingly shittier jobs with the lower pay, the longer hours, the reduced benefits, the end of overtime, and the vanishing pension that disappears the minute you go to collect it. And now they're coming for your Social Security money. They want your fucking retirement money. They want it back so they can give it to their criminal friends on Wall Street. And you know something? They'll get it. They'll get it all from you sooner or later because they own this fucking place. It's a big club, and you ain't in it. <laughs> you and I are not in the big club. By the way, it's the same big club they use to beat you over the head with all day long when they tell you what to believe. All day long, beating you over the head in their media, telling you what to believe, what to think, and what to buy. The table is tilted, folks. The game is rigged. And nobody seems to notice. Nobody seems to care. Good, honest, hard-working people, white collar, blue collar, it doesn't matter what color shirt you have on. Good, honest, hard-working people continue. These are people of modest means. Continue to elect these rich cocksuckers who don't give a fuck about them. They don't give a fuck about you. They don't give a fuck about you. They don't care about you at all. At all. At all. Yeah. You know? And nobody seems to notice, nobody seems to care. That's what the owners count on, the fact that Americans will probably remain willfully ignorant of the big red, white, and blue dick that's being jammed up their assholes every day. Because the owners of this country know the truth. It's called the American dream, because you have to be asleep to believe it. <laughs>